All the girls are complicated. Episode 82 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Terry Pratchett's novel Weird Sisters. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today is Leah Henning. Um, repeat listeners will notice that there are only two of us tonight. Usually there are three due to a scheduling issue. Um, we are a dyad tonight, and so we're going to have a nice one-on-one conversation about Pratchett's Weird Sisters. And um, to get started, Leah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Leah Henning. I um, am currently located in the suburbs of St. Paul, Minnesota, where I live very happily in an apartment with my cat, Lady Jane Grey, who, um, from her name, you might be able to tell that I have a history history degree um, and background in history. And so uh, I was very interested in doing this podcast on Terry Pratchett's novel, The Weird Sisters, because of its um, attachment to Shakespeare, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Thank you. I had no idea that was your cat's name. That's a fantastic choice. Um, She's one of my favorite figures that we learned about in graduate school. (laughs) Yes, well, my cat definitely lives up to her name. (laughs) Um, Listeners, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Houston, Texas. Uh, where I uh, spend most of my time uh, as a mom to three, almost four children um, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, We have a six-year-old, three-year-old, two-year-old, and then we have another baby coming in about two weeks. So um, that's a big part of our lives right now. And the rest of my time I spend as an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And um, this year have been concentrating on online teaching and also developing new online courses for the English department at HBU. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, getting to break some new ground and design some new course material. And um, so we're going to, um, we're going to just jump right in. Um, and, but before we get to talking about the actual novel, we just wanted to do a bit of background. And um, Leah is actually going to start us off tonight with just a little bit of information about the author, Terry Pratt. Sure. Um, So, born in April 1948, Sir Terence David John Pratchett, or as most people know him, Terry Pratchett, um, he's the imaginative author of Weird Sisters, as well as over 70 other novels. Um, The Discworld series, which Weird Sisters is a part of, has 41 books just on its own. I tried to find an exact number of books that he had published, but I didn't find anything definitive. Um, The best guesstimate is that it is between 70 and 80 books. Um, His works were some of the best-selling adult novels of the day, and he was actually the best-selling author of the UK in the 1990s. Um, With over 85 million copies sold worldwide, there have 
of course, been radio, TV, comic book, video games, and theater adaptations, uh, which includes a well-received adaptation of Weird Sisters for the stage. There is a really, really a lot to be said about him other than his books, of course. Uh, reading up on him, I was very intrigued to find that he was fascinated with computers and video games to the point where uh, even before there were portable computers like laptops, he would bring a computer with him everywhere because he was fascinated with them and just loved to use them for his writing. Uh, also, he was a big proponent and player of video games. And I believe he said that a favorite of his was Thief, which is one of my favorites as well. Uh, he was also very interested in natural history and astronomy, things that come out in some of his writing. Um, in 2007, he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease, but he did not let that slow him down. And he did make some very generous contributions to Alzheimer's associations. His final book was published five months after his death in March 2015 at the age of 66. Thank you so much. That was awesome and covers so many interesting things about him. Um, and uh, I kind of wanted to talk, and this I guess this is, a, this is the great place to do it before we get started, about our past experiences with Pratchett and... Um, how and when did we first encounter his writing or, you know, um, which books are our favorites? So when did you first um, kind of meet Terry Pratchett's material, Leah? Well, I heard about Terry Pratchett long before I ever really had the chance to experience his work firsthand. Um, and to be honest, Weird Sisters is the only book that I've actually read of his, even though I am very interested, especially now, in reading more of his work. Um, I got to see one of I, a play production of Weird Sisters, a local community theater group put it on, and it was hilarious and wonderful. Um, and it made me read the book. Uh, this was back when I was in high school, of course, so that's well over a decade ago now. Um, and so uh, this was a fun excuse to reread this and kind of rediscover Terry Pratchett. Uh, I'm so envious that you were able to see the stage production. That is super cool, especially to see it before reading the novel, I think would be a really awesome way to come to the novel. Um, I, I had never heard of Terry Pratchett until I was in graduate school. Um, and then when I when I started dating my husband David, he um, he was a, a huge Pratchett fan, and he had a lot of the books already. And so he said, I, you know, I think you might like this. Um, and so I kind of just started reading the way through um, the Discworld. Now I will say we we own all the all the Terry Pratchett novels. Pretty much that we own are Discworld novels. And I'm I have limited experience with his non-Discworld stuff. So I'm definitely not an authority on all things Pratchett at all. But um, the first Pratchett novel I read was Equal Rights, spelled R-I-T-E-S, Equal Rights, which is the first book um, that Granny Weatherwax is in, who's one of the characters we're going to talk about in this uh, podcast today. And I would say that of, of all the Terry Pratchett novels I've read, I think that the, witch, the ones that involve the witches characters who are in Weird Sisters are probably my favorite. Um, those are the ones that I go back to anytime I think I need a bedtime book what do I want to read before I go to sleep 
um, a lot of times I'll go back to one of my favorite Pratchett novels because as you said, it's hilarious. It's always funny, but also very thought provoking. And the characters just have get into your head. I, you know, I, it's, they're so real. And um, even characters that you wouldn't think about feeling very authentic and, and very human, somebody like Death, who appears in most of the Discworld novels, um, de- Death as a personification, a person. Um, and uh, he's one of my favorites, one of my favorite Pratchett characters. I'm also a big fan of the Pratchett novels that are about the, um, the City Watch. Um, the main character of those is a guy named Sam Vimes. And um, I think that those are also a lot of fun. And, and Pratchett is, is very skilled. The way that his satire works, I think, really works for me because it never, it, it's always very pointed, but it never feels mean or um, like it's trying to take cheap shots, which is nice because he does. He skewers a lot, of, um, a lot of this world, a lot of modern life, even though he's writing about a fantastical place. Um, and one other caveat listeners, too, about Terry Pratchett novels is all of his novels written for adults have no chapter breaks. So just be ready for that. If you experiment with Terry Pratchett for the first time, don't think you're going to be able to have easy stopping points at the end of chapters because he has no chapter breaks. And that was something that very much caught me off guard the first time I read his novels. Because I would think, oh, I'll stop. When I first started, I thought, I'll stop at the end of the chapter, but then it never came. So um, it makes them hard to put down. Um, though he does have chapter breaks in his novels written for young adults, um, which I'm going to mention later. So um, that's kind of how kind of how I get into it, and um, Pratchett's a big favorite with us. A lot of times, um, if somebody wants to know what to read and is in any way interested in kind of fantasy or anything like that, a lot of times I'll recommend Pratchett because it's such, uh, it's just, it's, it's so entertaining. It's just fantastic. Um, and I'll go ahead and say a, a bit, too, about this specific book, Weird Sisters, and where it fits, because I mentioned the, the witches' books. So um, the first novel with uh, one of the witches in it is, is Equal Rights, which I mentioned before. That was uh, uh, has Greeny Weatherwax in it, who's one of the main witch characters. And then this book, Weird Sisters, was published in 1988. Um, and it's the first one with a this group of witches, um, this coven of witches. And then there are multiple other novels that feature them. So Weird Sisters um, came first with a group of witches, then... The next novel, which I think came out pretty soon after Weird Sisters, is called um, Witches Abroad, um, which involves the same witch characters. Then there's one called Masquerade, which is a kind of takeoff on Phantom of the Opera. Um, and then, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, and I, I skipped one. Um, Weird Sisters comes first, then Witches Abroad, then one called Lords and Ladies, which is um, also riffing on Shakespeare on A Midsummer Night's Dream then Masquerade, then one called Carpe Jugulum, which has the witches but also deals with vampires. All those are kind of, if, if you were going to read the witches' books in an order, and Terry Pratchett always used to say you don't have to read his books in any particular order necessarily to find them entertaining, but if you want to get the sequence of events in order with the witches, that's kind of the order to read the books in. And then um, Granny Weatherwax and um, some of these other witch characters also appear in his series of books for young adults, um, which are about a young witch named Tiffany Aching. Um, and they're fantastic. And the first one of those is called The Wee Freeman. Um, but uh, that's just kind of where it fits with the rest. And the Discworld is vast and all-encompassing. So there, there are whole kind of 
groups of Discworld books that don't involve any of these characters, um, except maybe death. There's a bunch of Pratchett books, novels that revolve around a wizard named Rincewind. Um, those are favorite of my sister-in-law. Um, shout out to Ilea Grubbs. Um, and then there are also other ones that um, don't involve any wizards or witches. So um, there's kind of something for everyone, I guess. Um, okay, so um, Leah's also going to help us out by giving us just a very brief plot summary of Weird Sisters, because we're going to be talking a lot about specific stuff or specific characters. So listeners, just to help you before we move into that, um, we're just going to very briefly kind of sketch the plot. So Leah, why don't you go ahead and um, do that for us? Yeah, so uh, in a very few words, um, in Weird Sisters, we find ourselves not only in the fictitious disc world, but specifically in the country of Lamker, where foul deeds are afoot. The story begins, as most truly dramatic works do, with the assassination of a king by his cousin, Duke Felmet. The king's toddler son is rushed out of the castle, pursued by guards intent on killing him, but he is entrusted to three witches, Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Margaret Garlic. Uh, who sent him off to grow up with a company of thespians. We follow these three, our weird sisters, as they deal with the new king and a strange growing magic in Lanker itself that seems to be rebelling against Felmet with everything it has. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually, um, that the, the, just thinking about the plot, um, definitely is it's clear even just, well, from the title of the book, Weird Sisters, but also from the plot. Um, we mentioned earlier that this book is a Shakespearean adaptation. Um, it's kind of riffing on Shakespeare. And so that's one of the first things we wanted to talk about um, now as we're moving into talking about this specific novel is um, what kinds of things that we're seeing in this novel that mark it as um, a Shakespearean adaptation. Uh, what were some of, the, some of the most obvious ones that you noticed, Leah, when you were reading? <laughs> Well, the most obvious one is, of course, the Weird Sisters themselves. Uh, at the beginning of Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, we have this opening scene where there are three witches at their cauldron, double, double, toil and treble. Um, and they are called the Weird Sisters in Shakespeare's play. Um, here in Pratchett's book, Weird Sisters, uh, they are only referred to as the Weird Sisters, I think, once by Felmet himself as an insult. Um, but it sticks because in the, at the beginning of this book, Terry, at, at the beginning of Weird Sisters, um, we do have a scene where the three witches, uh, Granny, Nanny, and Magret, um, are meeting as a coven for the first time. And it's very reminiscent of that opening scene of Macbeth. Um, there are, of course, other obvious connections to Macbeth throughout the plot, such as Duke Falmet or Falmet uh, murdering his cousin to take the throne um, at the advice of his wife and his wife, the Duchess, being very overbearing and um, commanding, uh, very reminiscent of Lady Macbeth. There's also uh, 
a blood spot that will not come off the Duke's hands. Uh, he grows increasingly insane as the story goes on. Um, there's a bloody dagger and ghosts and uh, a theme of a returning prince to come and claim the throne once again. Uh, and that's just Macbeth, really. Uh, there are other Shakespeare nods uh, throughout Weird Sisters, um, such as kind of the play within the play, which is very reminiscent of Hamlet. Um Mm-hmm. There's there, there's the line about all the world's a stage from as you like it and 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 King Lear I believe, um. Well, well and with King Lear with Duke Falmet uh, descending into madness, um, with the company of his fool, uh, so there are quite a few Shakespeare ties that I saw. I, I I'm sure that there are others though. <laughs> No, that's, I mean, that's a great kind of summary. And it really is kind of a, very much of a Hamlet kind of Macbeth mashup, right? Mostly Macbeth. Um, One of the things that I think that I love the most uh, kind of Macbeth touches in Macbeth, right? You have um, the forest that moves, right? Um, As, and it's meant to be kind of a portent. And in the play Macbeth, it's not actually the trees. They're not actually moving. It's like guys with you know, branches looking like the the trees are coming. But um, throughout the whole novel, Weird Sisters, Duke Felmont has this weird thing about the trees. He keeps thinking that they seem foreboding, um, like they're watching him. Um, and he wants to just cut down all the trees because it's they're kind of scaring him and freaking him out. The thing that I love about Pratchett is that you find out that Lanker is a very, is a very magical place. Um, there's a lot of kind of just standing magic in the Discworld. And a lot of it is in these mountains where this country is. And so the, in Lanker, the trees really do sometimes move when there's no wind blowing or, um, or things like that. And there's a whole subplot in the novel of um, Granny realizing that the entire country is upset at having a king that doesn't care for it. That's what it says. And so, you know, because the, the Duke kills his cousin and takes over because he wants power, but it's not because he particularly cares for that specific kingdom. And um, the land somehow feels it. And so he's not wrong that the land, the trees, seem to have this menacing aspect towards him. Um, it's a really interesting way of interpreting or of Pratchett kind of taking and twisting that idea of the, uh, the trees coming in, uh, in Macbeth. Um, and other things, too. Um, the, 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 the kind of evil, pushy wife, Lady Macbeth character, um, she's fascinating. I also think it's really interesting that he shifts the kind of bloody hand thing from her to him, from the wife to the husband in his novel. Um, in, the, in the play, it's Lady Macbeth who feels like she can't get the blood off her hands. Um, and it's made unclear, too, in, the, in, in that play and I think in this novel, exactly the, if this is real blood or not. <laughs> like, if it's blood that won't wash off or if it's imagining that there's blood that won't wash off. Um, and it, it and, and Pratchett gets pretty gruesome with it. He talks about Duke Felmont getting a file and a wire scrubbing brush and says, you know, no matter how much he scrubs, the blood's still there. Well, of course it is because you're scrubbing your hands with a wire scrubbing brush. Um, it's just, it's very intense. Um, and, uh, just a couple of other things. I think that the, 
the the ghost king so the 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 king who's just recently been killed by his own cousin comes back as a ghost and wants vengeance right um and is kind of hinging that on his his son his his infant son that leah mentioned earlier and that feels you know very hamlet right um ghost dad king who's wanting his son to um to take over because he's he's been killed um Though I will say that in Hamlet, um, you know, it's it's a, sl- a slightly different story because you get uh, the ghost appearing in a way that feels much more portentous, much more scary. Um, the discussion of the ghost of King Varence in this novel, obviously because it's Pratchett and it's meant to be funny, is uh, has a lot of pathos, but it is is a lot is is played for laughs more often, I think. Um, and uh, and yeah, and the fool is definitely a bit of Lear for sure. Um, you know, both in the fact that the fool is there at all, right? Because we don't have a fool character in Macbeth. Um, and also the way that he sees it as his duty to stay with his master till death. Um, even though he's crazy. The fool knows he's crazy. He says that he's crazy. But he still, you know, still s- sticks to him. Because that's his job. That's his task as a fool. Um, all those things, I think, are really... Um, and then there's also just a lot of nods too, not just to these specific plays, but um, to the world of Shakespeare. Like, um, so the playwright in this book, uh, Leah mentioned that uh, the young, the young prince who saved uh, when his dad's killed, who they call Tom John, because uh, someone asked the witches what his name is, and one of them says Tom, and one says John at the same time, so they say Tom John. But uh, when Tom John gets adapted by or gets adopted by rolling thespians. Um, their playwright who writes their plays for them is named Well, H-W-E-L, very like Will, um, like William Shakespeare. And they, uh, by the end of the book, um, they are constructing a theater in Inkmore Pork, the biggest city in the Discworld, called The Disc. Um, like Shakespeare's Globe, except for The Discworld is flat, like a pancake and round. And so theirs is called The Disc. Um, just things like that, uh, that are kind of nods to um the uh, i guess the historical kind of reality and touches of of shakespeare's time is there anything else that you that you've thought of while i've been talking lee anything else you wanted to mention about the shakespearean part well i was just really glad that you mentioned um the the forest being alive and that whole subplot as you said because i think one of my favorite lines was actually given by the ghosts of the king um, regarding this. And it was the line uh, about the land and the king are one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's just such a powerful punch considering at this point they're carrying around a pebble from the castle in their in the witch's apron pocket so that they can talk to this ghost because he has to stay connected to the stones of the castle so it's right Mm -hmm. it's a very undignified position and then in the middle of this very comical situation you get a very serious line delivered like that which it's one of um the really fun and thought-provoking parts of reading terry pratchett's work i believe and i and i wanted to ask you too um because the you know I mean, obviously, Macbeth is not 
a history play, right? Though Shakespeare wrote many history plays. But I had meant to ask you too, as a historian, what do you think about the the statements he makes in the novel? Um, You know, Greeny keeps, every now and then will say something like, well, I know that the old king was murdered, but but that's kind of how it goes. You know, kings, somebody kills a king to become king, and then that king gets killed by another king, and so it's not really the same as a regular style murder. How did you feel kind of thinking about that theme as a historian? To be honest, I was laughing because that is pretty much what happens. Like every monarch <laughs> in history has had to be afraid of their lives. Like there's a reason why secret service and security for world leaders is as high as it is today. And that's because assassination is to be expected when you're in a position like that. So um, like even thinking to... Shakespeare's time, um, Elizabeth had numerous attempts on her life. Uh, Queen Mary before her, of course, had several attempts on her life, some of which were rumored to be connected to Elizabeth. Um, Edward was King Edward before Mary was also, uh, very nearly assassinated, um, Poor Jane Grey, who is somewhere in the middle there. She made a claim to the throne and was eventually killed by Mary, Bloody Mary. So, like, it it, it makes a lot of sense um, to view the monarchy like that. Because it is rather comical, and there is a lot of quite literal backstabbing that goes on in history like it it, you kind of wish it that it didn't and sometimes you will get those lengthy dynasties where nobody it it does the throne doesn't leave a direct line for quite a while and then all of a sudden it's a cousin or a king or if if you think a, a neighboring king or if you think of the wars of the roses it's a distant relative um, from your great-grandfather's side who has decided that they'd be a better king than you would be. Um, And Pratchett was just really great at delivering that observation in a really funny, off-the-cuff, sarcastic way that kind of just throws away the idea of uh, the divine right to rule. And I love, too, how um, he kind of makes the crown, the official crown of Lanker, as a kind of physical, I guess, representation of that. Because um, when they, when the baby, when the, you know, the guard escapes with the baby, he also brings the crown. And so they have to hide the crown, too. But Granny puts on the crown, right, for a moment, because she's curious and feels kind of imperious and cool for a minute because she's wearing the crown and then takes it off because she starts to hear screams and chariots and you know fighting and the idea that all of that kind of strife is somehow connected to the crown um was really interesting to me that was one of my favorite kind of bits of um physical symbolism i guess maybe is what you would call that um and also the idea that the crown will be found um i think it's Megrad. i think it's the English witch who says well let's just bury it in the ground and the two older witches say no because somebody will find it in a week 
digging for whatever in the forest. Crowns call out to people. And the way that they are able to hide this crown is they put it at the bottom of the props box in the, the actor's tent among a bunch of other crowns. And that's the only way that they're able to, to keep it hidden because um, it's the crown is, is such a heavy presence, I guess, the way that they talk about it. And it's almost poisonous, too, the way that it's portrayed in that scene because um, you've, you get this wonderful conversation between Granny and Magrette about, um, well, if, if somebody who's not as strong-minded or strong-willed as us would come upon it, they would want to wear it and would never be able to take it off. Mm, um, yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. So that that's just a beautiful... Um, imagery of kind of the poison of power that goes with the crown yeah and and the idea that it's somehow different to seize power if you actually want the country in question um there's a discussion that they have and i'm trying to find it real fast um they're talking about the um you know this constant shifting of power the constant shifting of of crowns and granny's attempting to explain to nanny and Magrat that how she's figured out that the kingdom itself is upset about um, Duke Felmont having usurped the throne. And Nanny says, lots of people have killed each other to become king of Lanker, so, you know, how is this different? Um, And uh, Granny says, this new man just wants the power, he hates the kingdom. And Magrat says, it's a bit like a dog, really. And Granny says, very much like a dog doesn't care if its master's good or bad, just so long as it likes the dog. That And I thought that was so interesting that that's the problem, at least from the point of view of the kingdom itself, the land, is that um, this new king, the problem with him, according to the land, is not that he seized power by a murder, but that he doesn't even care for the country he's acquired, for the land itself, and kind of hates it. Um, I thought that was interesting, too, because to me, um, it was pretty clear in the novel that even though he's a cousin of the previous king, he doesn't appear to have grown up here in Lanker. It seems to be a new landscape for him um, and, and one that he intensely dislikes. I think he's supposed to be from the plains or something. And so that was interesting, too, is that, you know, maybe he's more of a distant cousin, like you mentioned, because he doesn't seem to have grown up in this place and have any connection to the land. Yeah, that's a really good point, that he he was a an alien in a foreign land uh, because he— he and his wife, the Duchess or Queen, um, they are constantly asking the servants and the townspeople, well, what what do you think of witches? What what are your traditions here? Are you not afraid of them? Aren't they evil? Don't they have all of these different stereotypes don't they fulfill them all and the townspeople are all going um no not here here we get along just fine um or revealing little bits and pieces and the duke and duchess just constantly override that and really do have that abuse of power and and i think you get a sense in some of his other books too that there is a difference um, particularly in the Tiffany Aching books, she's from a place that's down in what they call the chalk, kind of in, um, it's, it's a lower level down below the mountains. But um, I know there's a one particular witch in those books, Miss Tick, 
um, who's a teacher, but um, her kind of pointy witch hat is a stealth hat. Like it only points when she wants it to because she gets thrown into ponds all the time down on the plains or people like people will tie her up and throw her into the water because, you know, they're, they're still suspicious. They're suspicious of witches there. And it's that that attitude of witches are sinister, whereas up in the mountains in Lanker, you know, witches are delivering babies and, you know, laying out the dead and helping people with their ailments. You know, they're like a combo of a doctor and a midwife almost. Um, and so it's a very different. And that's one of the reasons I like this book, too, is that um, he really does an amazing job of turning the kind of scary witches idea on its head. You know, um, you mentioned that first scene where there's lightning stabbing the earth and it all feels very eldritch. He uses that word, an eldritch voice is shrieking, when shall we three meet again? And one of them says, well, I can do next Tuesday. Like, it just kind of instantly punctures the drama of uh, he's, that he'd been setting up for, you know, half a page with a very ordinary statement. And that's the thing about these the witches' novels with Terry Pratchett is that he takes a lot of the kind of more sinister ideas about witches and just kind of undoes them all methodically in a way that's really interesting. Um, yeah, were you going to say something else? Oh, I was just going to kind of build off what you just said and point out like how Pratchett builds up the difference between fear and respect as well. So our three witches here, they, they kind of do want to be feared in the way that they want to be respected, but they don't necessarily want people to be afraid of them, even though they do have that capacity of being terrifying as evidenced by how they can make people shut up or leave them alone if they glare. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And 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 you get and it's in varying degrees too. Like I know one of one of Megrat's kind of struggles is that she doesn't get that same fearful respect at the same level as uh as the other two. And part of that's just because she's much younger, you know. But um she kind of doesn't have the same uh get the same or I guess maybe doesn't appear to have the same gravitas. And so she doesn't get the same level of respect. And that's a frustration to her, I think in multiple books, actually. Um, That's a good transition though, um, into a kind of second question we were thinking about tonight. Um, One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this book in particular um, is because it's the first book where Pratchett um, is dealing with all these different witches, but I think you see this in all the witches books, but um, I think he has some really interesting things to say about feminine power um, and which connects up to the feminist half of our Christian feminist kind of paradigm here. So that's the kind of the next place we wanted to go with this is, is to think about what ideas about feminine power or feminist ideas or, or anything like that. What, what kinds of things like that are we seeing in the novel? Is there anything um, to do with that, Leah, that you really picked up on on this reading? Um, a little bit. So I guess... I noticed as I was reading through this again that there are really four main female characters. There's um, the Duchess, of course, but then there's our three weird sisters. Um, And they all portray very different images of powerful women. Um, So Granny... Weatherwax 
is, of course, the eldest and most revered of these witches. And she kind of has that more ancient gravitas to her, more conservative values um, in the world of witchcraft, and definitely has her own opinions about everything. Um, And having her contrasted with Nanny Og, who is a very boisterous, um, matronly witch who has had at least three husbands and something like 25 children and X many grandchildren and great grandchildren who's very raunchy and likes to go out and drink and kind of um, she would be the one to talk to a young maiden and tell her what the birds and the bees were. Uh, Their friendship kind of brings up quite a bit of clash uh, of female power because with Granny Weatherwax, you see someone who is very self-confident and power comes from within and from your own mind or what uh, she would call headology. And uh, with Nanny Og, you get um, a different sort of self-power, which comes more from sexuality and more physical uh, material. Uh, I believe it says in one point that her witchcraft is more the summoning kind. She really likes to summon demons and command them to do her will. Um, And then Magret is the sort who really likes material goods. Uh, She really needs her jewelry and um, her, her chants and pageantry, but is much more of a, a, but you could call a delicate femininity out of the three. She wants to be kind to everyone. She wants everyone to get along. She kind of wants everyone to like her and uh, wants to do her best to have everyone like her. But at the same time, she wants to be that powerful, fearful, or respectful witch like uh, Granny Weatherwax or Nanny Og. Um, and then there's the Duchess, who ha- who is basically a bully um, who who doesn't listen to anyone, which isn't necessarily a f- show of feminine power more than it is just a show of power abuse. Um, but it just goes to show that that can happen regardless of gender in that position. It's a good contrast too with um with the with the other witches because you know you you've got granny has you know enormous power um though it's not as apparent in this book as it is if you take them all together but she uses her power for good right um and also the idea that um there should be hesitation to use power so one of the re- one of the things that you see happening in this novel too is that um up and uh, up until they decide to disregard this guideline um granny and nanny keep saying things like but you can't use magic to interfere in history 
We can't use magic to get rid of this king, new king that nobody likes because that's not what magic is for. And once you start, you never stop, right? Um, and, you know, so in the end, they don't, they don't use their, their kind of power to just directly remove him, but they, they kind of help things along in some other ways. But um, the Duchess is not a person who's ever thought, maybe I shouldn't use my power. You know, she's a person who seeks power and enjoys um, lording it over others. Um, I like the way you talked about Nanny to kind of drawing her power from relationships so that Nanny's very, she's very gregarious. She's a lot of fun. She's kind of body. Um, my husband always compares her to the wife of Bath um, and uh, from Chaucer. And That's know, a very good, that's a good alignment. <laughs> I think so. There's even in one of the novels, they go on a, a trip on a stagecoach and she, um, the driver says later she made everyone tell stories. And the story that she tells, he, he, would, he will never repeat. He's, like, scandalized by the story that she tells. Um, but, uh, you know, so she seems, on the one hand, very, and she is very approachable. Um, in Masquerade, which I, I was rereading the other day, um, Granny has the realization that Nanny, one of, Nanny has a magic all her own, which is that she gets on with people. You know, that she's the kind of person who can be in a place five minutes and already it's like she's always been there and nobody remembers that she was not a part of the group. Um, so she is that person, but she also, you know, we get told in every book that has Nanny Og, including Weird Sisters, that she is the undisputed tyrant of her entire family. That, you know, her many, many children and um, she never has to lift a finger. She doesn't do any housework because her daughters and daughters-in-law, whose names she can't remember, by the way, the daughters-in-law, she never remembers their names. She doesn't bother. Um, they do all her housework for her. So, you know, she kind of, um, and she'll say things like, yeah, it's hard out there for an old lady, even though she's not meaning herself, because, you know, she's kind of the matriarch of this vast tribe, and they do everything for her. And so um, in her own sphere of her family and of the local community, she has, you know, unrivaled power because of the connections and the relationships. She pulls a lot of strings, I think is how somebody says it. Um, and you're right, that's a, a big contrast with Granny, whose brand of feminine power is very much to do with choosing singleness, um, choosing to be, to be devoted to, to the craft, to be free of distractions. Um, it's said in more than one book that Granny's house is kind of bare. She doesn't have lots of um, personal belongings. The ones that she has kind of fit in a small box. And, you know, um, her life is kind of stripped down to the bone. They say that in another book. Um, because for her, what matters is what's inside. Um, and one of the things that you see in all the Greenie books, too, is that Greenie's really great at what Pratchett calls borrowing, which is where um, a witch can, in this world, can kind of use her mind to ride the mind of something else, like an animal. Um, so Greenie will lay in her bed at night, and she'll go out observing the forest on the mind of an owl, right? Or something like that. And, and she's, she's better at this than anyone else pretty much has ever been. Um, and so her strengths are very much inner. Um, and the way that she has chosen to live her life. And it says in Weird Sisters too that Granny will concede reluctantly that it's okay for witches to get married. But she still has never really approved of Nanny Ogg's like, whole kind of way of doing things with three husbands. And that's only the official score, I think is what Nanny says. Um, but Granny has this, like you said, more conservative, kind of vaguely tut-tutty attitude about Nanny's much more kind of sex-positive, marriage- and family-centered life. Um, 
And then added to that with Megret, I think you're also totally right about the fact that she seems to try to put on power by a stuff. Um, she has like a clinging green dress and a cloak and, you know, she doesn't like to wear the pointy hat, but she has tons of occult jewelry all over her all the time, you know, and that she uh, feels the need to, that it makes her feel powerful to have the official stuff, the right runic knife or whatever it is, drawing the octograms and all the kind of stuff. And um, Pratchett says, you know, that Nanny and Granny know that you can do the same thing with a sharp stick and a bread knife. That you don't need all that stuff, but she, but Magret feels like she does, you know, to be able to put on that confidence, like you were talking about, that power. And it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting contrast with the with the other witches um, and how they do things. And I also think it's interesting too that he's kind of using witchcraft to me as a metaphor for being maybe not being a woman, but the idea that. Um, it, there seem to be as many different ways of being a witch in these books as there are ways of being a woman, right? That there's not a, a kind of, oh, well, all the witches have, you know, some things about them are the same because they're all witches. Well, no, they're not. They're all good at different things. They all do magic different ways. Um, you know, Nanny won't borrow. She doesn't do borrowing. She doesn't go out on the minds of creatures because she gets, she says she gets too involved. And then sometimes she doesn't want to come back, right? Which says something about her. You know, just stuff like that. And I think, too, that one of the, the most kind of, if you're going to call it, feminist things about Pratchett's writing is that he writes complex women, complex female characters, and to take as the protagonists of your book three women, two of them elderly women, and then present them as, you know, kind of unqualifiedly competent is unusual. That's not something you see all the time in fiction. I would say particularly not in fantasy fiction. I mean, do you think that's maybe, would you agree with that, Leah? I believe I would, um, especially especially the way that these characters interact with each other. It's very unique because while you do ha often have an elderly, older wiser uh, female figure in a fantasy book. Um, and it's either an elderly female character or an elderly male character, never both. Um, you don't have more than one. Um, if it's, if it is an elderly female character, it's only the one that, that is wise and is um, plays just the wise character role. They don't get involved in the action. Whereas here, you have kind of three, these three witches who are kind of different ages, different experience levels, and different perspectives who are all in the middle of the action, do, kind of doing their own thing, but also working together to, to get stuff done. So it, it is very refreshing and um, it is unique to see that unfold, uh, how, how they can maintain their unique characteristics and still uh, work together. I like it too because it kind of, there's a nod I think towards the, the different 
equally valid choices that, and really that people can make, but that women can make. So that there's this, the, there's a big moment in this novel where um, Megrat comes to rescue Nanny, who's been taken into the dungeon by the by the the evil duke, and she decides to try to um, to rescue Nanny by putting her hands on the old heavy oak door of the dungeon and um, basically doing a, a kind of spell that shoots life into this old wood door so that the door then like starts springing roots and tries to bloom and basically she kind of you know reminds it of when it was a tree and it shatters the door and then he's able to get out and granny has watched the whole thing hidden in the hallway and she says something like well that's not how I would have done it but that was a great effort you know, like she might have done something with the stones in the wall, but the idea that you could accomplish the same thing via different methods, right? Um, and that uh, there's, you know, multiple ways to be a witch, multiple choices that you can make, particularly because Pratchett presents, you know, presents Granny and Nanny, who are almost total opposites in the way they operate, but presents their kind of paths as equally valid, right? So that there's nothing, you know, Granny is the most powerful. In one of the witches' books, it says something like, she's the most, uh, witches are not hierarchical, they say, but that Granny's the most highly regarded of the leaders they don't have, um, which I always thought was hilarious. Um, but there's no indication that the Nanny's path has is in some way lesser, even though she maybe is not, doesn't have the raw power of Granny. And I think there's a lot, he, he has a lot of good things to say about the fact that maybe Granny's path, which has led her to, even more power has its prices, right? Um, there, you know, she's chosen a, a lonelier path, and so it's just interesting how those kind of things um, can play off of each other. Um, and one other thing I think that I noticed, um, one I think maybe more obvious thing, kind of nod, is that um, in they go to see the the first time they go to see the actors performing, the traveling actors. Um, Magrat is scared to tell Granny that all of the people playing the roles are men um, because women aren't allowed to be performing in the theater. She's scared to tell that to Granny because Granny has views. That's with a capital V. Um, and she thinks that Granny will be infuriated that women aren't allowed to participate. Um, and that's kind of a more obvious nod to um, ideas about feminism or about um, equality. Um, and I think it's also maybe a shout shout back to Equal Rights, which is the first book that, um, with Granny. And Granny Weatherwax is the only witch. Like, Nanny is not in that book, I don't think, and Megrat's not either. But in that book, um, there's a young girl who is showing the signs, um, who has the ability to do magic, but like a wizard. Which, that's another thing. Let me back up and say, in Terry Pratchett's world, wizards do magic differently than witches. Um, so magic is different along gender lines. But this particular girl does magic like a wizard. And in Equal Rights, Granny's basically trying to get her some recognition, get her the chance to be trained, um, and not just make her into a witch because she happens to be a girl, right? Um, and so I think that's also maybe a, a shout back. Um, it's also interesting to me, too, that Granny's kind of... Um, Granny's ideas about uh, gendered behavior are fairly confirmed, but she doesn't tend to apply them to herself. So you talked about her being more conservative. And uh, Magret says to Nanny and, and Greeny that she uh, she hasn't been to the theater yet, 
since the players came to, to town this time because Magrat says it's not right a woman going into such places by herself. And Granny nods, and he says, Granny thoroughly approved of such sentiments, so long as there was, of course, no suggestion that they apply to her. So, you know, she's not necessarily out crusading to, uh, to break down the barriers of gendered behavior. It's more that she just doesn't apply anything she considers um, unfair or unpalatable to herself, which is kind of interesting. Um, Granny's less about sisterhood, as it were, and more about, you know, you... Uh, you do your own thing and, um, and you know, fight for your respect, like we talked about, right? Make people respect you, because if you don't have respect, you don't have anything. That's what she says. Um, and all that's working together. I think it's a lot of, it's, a, it's, it's thought-provoking. Um, well, we're going to do one more quick question, listeners. Um, so we, we kind of talked about the, the feminist side of Christian feminists. Just thinking about the Christian side for just a minute, um, Pratchett was a confirmed secular humanist his whole life. Um, and, um, you know, there are some in the, in the church who might say, well, you know, why would you want to, um, to, read, uh, to read novels by a person who found no place in his own life for the value of faith? And so that's our kind of final question then is what value do we see for Christians in reading novels um, by writers like Pratchett, who are, you know, confirmed secular humanist or atheist or anything like that. What value do you think we can find in novels like this um, from the Christian side, Leah? Well, first of all, I think that there's always a value to be had in just hearing or reading or interacting with a different perspective than your own. So in that regards, just there, it's worth reading one of Terry Pratchett's books. However, he does have quite a bit to say about how people interact with each other. And one recurring theme that kept coming up throughout the entire book was the question of motive. So we talked a little bit about the motive of why the Duke murdered the king to take over Lacquer. Um, and while he didn't love the land, the land despised him. So as, since his motives were questionable, unpure, he didn't care about the responsibility that he was taking on. He only wanted the power. Um, the results that were coming his way were very clearly negative versus the witches whose motives from the beginning are for good, but maybe a bit more self-centered good. Um, a, a constant observation by Magrette throughout the book is that um, witches really are selfish. That Whenever they get involved in something, it's really just for their own interests. Uh, it is for their own interests, but it's also how their own interests interact with everybody else around them. So while their motives are on the selfish side, they are also looking out for other people. So there is a, a big spell that is cast um, a little over halfway through this book. Um, Granny Weatherwax casts a spell to um, <laughs> 
without giving too many spoilers away, to alter the reality of the kingdom so that um, they can speed up the the end of this king's reign and speed up the return of this lost prince without directly interfering in history. Um, and she does it a little out of spite because at this point she's very frustrated with where she's been placed, how the, how the kingdom the people in the kingdom have been looking at her and treating her because of things that the Duke has said and rumors that he's spread. So in that regards, it is very selfish. However, she doesn't want the kingdom to fall to ruin while waiting for the lost prince to return. She wants to make sure that there is something of a kingdom left for him uh, when he returns. So, there is that idea of motive about your heart being in the right place and um, making sure that your motives are coming from a place of good intentions, which is something that I find through my faith reading through the New Testament. It is a part of what we believe that motive is a, a big part of our actions, faith and um, belief is a big driving point as to what our actions have to say about us. Thanks. I'm so glad you brought up that point about, about selfishness too. Um, that's actually a, that's a theme he, he returns to a lot when he's in the witches books. And I know in, um, I think it's in one of the Tiffany Aching books, um, she kind of it occurs to her that the way to respond to the charge that witches are selfish or the way that applies to the things they do is to um she says something like to make all if if witches are selfish then make all things yours my country my people so i will protect them like you know that the idea that you would um a kind of jealousy in the same way that the Bible says God's a jealous God, right? Jealous for his people. Um, the idea that a, a witch is, you know, protecting people or um, in the case of Tiffany Aching, it's her younger brother in the first book, but that, that that protectiveness is a kind of selfishness, but not a bad kind. You know, the kind that makes you do good for other people because they're yours. And I think, you know, and, and that, that, that kind of um, comes out um, in this book and makes sense of something too that there's this interesting tension in his books too where you have these witches this is a world where magic is real people can do magic the witches can do magic but at the same time they're willing to you know deliver people's babies lay out their dead bodies and take care of people's kind of cruddy yucky icky ailments all the time but why would they do that you know um, and maybe tied up all in that somewhere is this idea of um, because they're my people because um, each witch has a territory and we didn't really say anything about that but these three witches are kind of in a coven together because they're they're kind of separate villages or territories meet up together and so they're all kind of adjacent um, each witch has her own area that she is kind of in charge of um, for me one of the the best reasons to read Pratchett um, for a Christian to read Pratchett even though he was not writing from a, a Christian viewpoint is because 
um, one of the best things about reading fiction, because by the way, I mean, I, you know, I, I know and have known Christians who feel like that reading fiction at all is kind of pointless, which always makes me very sad. Um, and not just because I enjoy fiction, but the idea that um, why would you read fiction when you could be reading theology or history or something that, you know, has more, quote, bearing on everyday life. Um, but, you know, one of the most valuable things about fiction is that it, you know, holds a mirror up to life, right? We've all heard that a million times. But that it, it you know, is exploring people. What are people like? How do people think? And that's one of the best reasons to me for a Christian to read Pratchett is because he writes people better than than, you know, so many other writers that I've ever read. Um, his, his characters are so fully realized, so complex, um, maybe in part because he would return to the same characters book after book sometimes. Um, one of the greatest things about Granny Weatherwax that doesn't come through a lot in this book but does in the others is that Nanny says at one point that all the Weatherwaxes have kind of had one, always had one foot, kind of turn towards the bad and that most of their power comes from denying that and choosing to be good. And that's a really interesting idea. Um, I think for a Christian to think about too, the idea that um, there's a power in spurning sin and trying to root out, um, you know, sin tendencies or root out pride or vice or um, that there's a kind of, um, a kind of power there and uh, he has interesting things to say in other books, too, about um, about religion, about the nature of belief. Um, one of the things that is in several books in the Discworld that he talks about a lot is the idea that in the Discworld, um, gods form and get stronger because people believe in them. And if people stop believing in a god, like the god will be existent, will be there and real. But then if people stop believing in that god, that god just kind of fades away. Um, you know, so he actually has some really interesting discussions just of the nature of belief. Um, and in, uh, in Carpe Jugulum, which is the Greeny Weatherwax book where there are vampires, um, she has a really interesting discussion with a young cleric, um, in which she, she tells him something like, she says that, um, sin is when you treat people like things, that this is her opinion of what a sin is. Um, and so he has a, a lot of interesting things to say about faith, but I think probably the best reason for a Christian to read Pratchett is, again, just because um, good, thick, solid, dynamic characterization is always going to be, um, or should always be of interest to a Christian because it reflects life, real life. And I think that he, um, despite the fact that he's writing about a fictional, fantastical world that is in many ways satirizing our world, still is very, feels very true to life. Um, and I think that's one of the best reasons to, to give Pratchett a look, um, if you haven't before. Um, do you have any other, any, any last things you wanted to say about this before we move to passing on, Leah? Oh, I just wanted to agree with what you said about these characters being so believable. Um, you will read these and you'll kind of think to yourself, I, I think I know somebody like, like Granny or, or Nanny or, um, or even Magret, because I was thinking of some friends of mine in college who Magret kind of reminded me of, or um, some women that I've encountered even in the church uh, who were very reminiscent of Granny in how they uh, certainly had their opinions, but would also go out of their way to help people. Um, so 
there is definitely that mirror to real life that is very uh, enjoyable in this, in this, and I'm sure in Pratchett's other books. It's interesting too. I can always tell that characters are really well written if I find myself trying to figure out which characters I'm like or or having characters I want to be like in the book. Um, and I, I feel like I've always been, I, I'm kind of a nanny who wants to be a granny. Um, I think I, you know, I, I'm more of a nanny og on the outside and always have been in the way that I've, the way I express myself, the way I've lived my life. But I think that I've got more granny on the inside than maybe anybody would ever realize in, in terms of her, her pride, right? Um, strongly held opinions, um, things like that. And I always, um, so I like being able to, like you said, to see people I've known or see bits of myself in, in these characters. Um, we're going to, uh, listeners, we're going to move on to our last section to, uh, now, which we always do, which is passing on. So what would you like to recommend tonight, Leah? Well, in the spirit of Shakespeare, you, I have to recommend Macbeth. Like there are so many parallels between Weird Sister and Macbeth that, to be honest, I started reading it again this week because I just could not stop myself. Um, Terry Pratchett just kind of reminded me of my love of quite a few of those iconic scenes. So I just kind of want to uh, recommend that. Um, in addition to Shakespeare, of course, there's also a really good article that was written um, on genderfocus.com entitled, Was Terry Pratchett a Feminist? Um, this isn't a, a Christian perspective of Terry Pratchett. However, it is a perspective of a woman who uh, did her research and definitely brought in a lot of observations about how women are treated uh, across the board in quite a few of his novels um, and does mention some uh, some analysis of the Weird Sisters as well uh, that was just really interesting and does give some very good um, background and observation on on women and female power in Terry Pratchett's works. That sounds awesome. Um, and I can't wait to check out that article. Um, there's another article too, and I and I, I don't have the title right now, but um, back when I was in graduate school, one of our graduate school professors, Dr. Frantique, she wrote a paper about, about Weird Sisters as an adaptation. Um, and I'll try to find the title of that if I can, listeners, and link that too. Um, I also have two things to recommend. Um, one is also Macbeth related, so I'm glad you were recommending Macbeth too. The first thing I want to recommend is actually a film adaptation of Macbeth, one that um, listeners might not be familiar with, um, and it's the uh, Akira Kurosawa film Throne of Blood, um, a very famous samurai film that is an adaptation of Macbeth. It's particularly interesting because in that film, the three witches of Macbeth are collapsed into one. Um, and in a way that, um, from what I've read, is, is more distinctively Japanese um, in terms of folklore and, um, and kind of witch lore. So um, give, give that a check out if you're at all interested. Um, and uh, there's a really good Criterion Collection edition of that film. And uh, the other thing that I want to recommend tonight is to recommend uh, Terry Pratchett's series of uh, YA novels, which are about Tiffany Aching, which I mentioned earlier. Um, they're witches adjacent, 
so that uh, Tiffany's a young witch and um, only glancingly in the first book, but especially in subsequent um, books about Tiffany when she, she goes up to the mountains to do her witch training and she interacts a lot with Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and some of these other witch characters. But um, the first Tiffany aching book is called The Wee Freeman and um, it is, will feel familiar to anyone who's ever seen the film Labyrinth. Um, <laughs> Tiffany's uh, small brother is taken um, captive by the Queen of the Fairies and uh, nine-year-old Tiffany who wants to be a witch but that's about as far as she's thought it through uh, goes out to rescue him and it's fantastic Terry Pratchett writing with uh, with chapter breaks which is nice um, and there are uh, several other books um, that follow that and actually um, Leah mentioned way back at the beginning of our recording tonight that his last book was uh, published posthumously his last book, called The Shepherd's Crown, is a, is a Tiffany book. It's a Tiffany aching book, but that also includes um, almost every other witch that's ever mentioned in any of the witches' books. It's a kind of a conglomeration, um, and in many ways kind of brings uh, the story of some of the witches full circle. So um, definitely check out The Wee Freeman. Um, and uh, starring Tiffany Aching. I think actually this is the second time I've recommended those books because I think when we did our, um, our Miyazaki episode, I think I recommended it then too because I've always dreamed of seeing a, a Miyazaki version of the Tiffany Aching stories. And uh, maybe one day, we'll see. But uh, well, thank you so much uh, listeners for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, we love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line for any reason, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, for show notes for this episode and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. Uh, for Leah Henning and myself, um, Katie Grubbs, we thank you so much for listening and tune in two weeks. Uh, tune in in two weeks for an episode on Kathleen Norris's text, The Quotidian Mysteries. Until then, in essentials unity and non essentials liberty and in all things love.